don't discuss. Candid conversations about the things we're told we can't talk about in business. From what it feels like to be the only one in the room to finally getting a seat at the table, navigating business while Black and woman can be professionally challenging, but personally rewarding. Join us for insightful interviews that validate that what we often feel, sense, and experience is real. Armed with these success stories, we can be better equipped to shatter glass ceilings and break through cement walls with authenticity. I'm telling. I'm telling. I'm telling. I'm telling. I'm telling. I always knew I was going to college. I didn't know how I would get there or pay for it. I just knew I was going. Why? Because my parents told me so. They expected that of me. They were brilliant human beings in their own right, but they didn't have the benefit of a full education. And precisely because of that, they both committed to making sure that my sisters and I focused on learning, on having no limitations in school or in life. And they were right. I would become the first person in my immediate family to not only go to school, but to achieve executive ascendancy in my career. I literally went from the cubicle to the corner office. But even though I got there, or I'm getting there, I think the journey still continues. Very early on, it was hard. I was experiencing things that no one in my immediate family could relate to. I couldn't call home for advice, for help, for someone who could say, I've, I've been there. So being the first while becoming a source of pride was also sometimes a source of pain. I didn't have a career compass, a GPS to help me navigate this new world. And still, I persisted. Because although I didn't know the how of it, I understood the necessity of figuring it out. I was expected to walk through the door of opportunity, and if a door wasn't there, I was to find a window and claw my way up to it, climb my way through it. And that's what you do when you're the first. You recognize that awesome responsibility. You don't let it weigh you down. You let it lift you to higher ground. You let it become your own black privilege. In this episode of Things We Don't Discuss, we are joined by retired judge Renee Cardwell-Hughes. She, too, was a first-generation college career executive. She's a Southern belle who is all things Southern comfort and worldly wisdom. Today, she shares what it was like to be the first in her family to go to college, to carry her family's dream, find it somewhat deferred, and invent a new dream, a bigger dream, a dream of her own, and become the embodiment of perseverance, of pride, of success. When the door of opportunity seemed to shut, she climbed through a window instead. And the best part? Whenever she entered a new room, a less than diverse room, she ensured that while she might be the first one, she would not be the last one. Things We Don't Discuss is brought to you by our sponsors, Little Drummer Boy Recordings, for all of your audio and podcasting needs, and by Home Studio Tutor, teaching digital music creation and entrepreneurship to the world. I'm Judge Renee Cardwell-Hughes, 
I am a retired judge, a retired um, not-for-profit CEO. However, I am never retired. I have simply reinvented, and I now am CEO of the Hughes Group, which focuses on strategic planning, change management, crisis management, and leadership development. Reinventing yourself. I love, I love the idea of reimagining what the present and what the future might be like. Uh, and as I think about many of the gems that you've shared with, with me and with others over the years, Judge Hughes, I'm really thankful and delighted to have you with us on things we don't discuss. I'm very much excited about what I know we will accomplish, and that is a candid conversation about the things that we know happen in the workplace, um, but regrettably, some of us are not necessarily prepared for them. And you've done a tremendous job of helping many of us um, uh, in this, this school of life, if you will. So with that in mind, can you talk to us a little bit? Let's, let's go back. Let's go back to the very beginning. And um, we know you arrived in the workforce and have done an amazing job throughout your career. Um, but before you got to this season, can you talk to us about how it all started, first generation, first in your family, in your immediate family, to benefit from uh, college education? Can you talk to us about that journey? It's really, really important that if you are a parent, that you have a dream for your child. Um, children, are, children truly, truly are sponges. And they will soak up whatever you present to them. And what my parents presented to me and my siblings was that we had to go to college. College was going to change the arc of our life. And they were very serious about that. I am from Virginia, Lynchburg, Virginia, a very poor family. Uh, my father worked three jobs. My mother worked full time. And my uncle who owned a cab stand and rental property, lived with us until I was 17. And it was not negotiable for us. We were going to college because college in my parents' mind meant that we would not have to work as hard as they did. When I was little, people would say, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I would say, go to college. <laughs> it just was not negotiable. And I think it's so important that we dream for our children but balance that with understanding that as they begin to dream, our role then becomes to be supportive. Mm -hmm. So my parents never said, you can't do. Just the opposite. They always believed that if I said I was going to do it, then it was going to happen, period. And I think that is so important for young parents to focus on now. Agreed. So your parents had the, the audacity of having a dream for you, uh, I'm sure, until you could kind of own that dream and make it your own. When do you think things kind of clicked for you? It's, it's, it's obvious that you'd recognize this was your, your path. They made it that way. Um, but when did it become your mutual dream? Oh, it became my dream very, very, very young. Um, I was in elementary school. I wanted to be a pediatrician. And I'm from the South, as I mentioned before. And so down South, basically, at that time, you were a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, a preacher. Those were the only careers we knew. And I think one of the reasons that I so like talking with young women like you and all the other young women in my life is that I firmly believe 
that you've got to see it. You've got to see that there are so many paths out here for you. So those were the paths I knew. Doctor, lawyer, teacher, preacher. And I chose pediatrician, right? I was going to be the world's greatest pediatrician until I got to University of Virginia Flunk Chemistry. <laughs> that was a game changer. <laughs> it was like, okay. Now, number one, you're talking to a person who, until she flunked chemistry, had never seen anything less than an A in her entire life. Sure. And I'm, I'm the gold sticker child from kindergarten, and I, I was always on a roll and straight A's. And so this was devastating for me because there wasn't anyone for me to lean on. But the one thing that I knew, because my father had said it, when he took me to school, he said, you must succeed to the four behind you will know that they too can succeed. So if I wasn't going to be a pediatrician, what was I going to be? Because I could not go home. I discovered economics. I really liked it. So I majored in economics and changed my path. And what I want you to hear is that there are many paths to your dream. You just have to set your dreams high enough. And my dream was to have a good life, to make a difference in the community, and to knock down some doors for my sister and my three brothers. Sure. Well, there are many ways to accomplish that dream. Many ways. So, okay, fine. I'm not the world's greatest pediatrician, but I've had a fascinating career and I'm still having a fascinating life as I launch this new career. Sure. Sure. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, when you reimagined the the dream, right? When you made this adjustment. So you figured out that in school in school you figured out that maybe the pediatrician path wasn't the ideal one for you. But there was a new dream for you. Um, when did you decide that law school might be an option for you? And and again, coming from a family that believed in you and was supporting you, but didn't necessarily have that um, and perhaps they did have an opportunity to guide you toward a new career. How did you negotiate that? How did how did you reconcile maybe the putting away one dream and picking up another? I didn't think I had a choice. I couldn't fail. So I had to find something that I could succeed at. And at the time that I was at University of Virginia, women were relatively new to the university. So there wasn't a lot of support. I picked up economics. It was interesting. I liked it. Um, after school, I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I had to be self-reliant. And my family, once you turn 18, you go to college, you go to military, or you get a job taking care of yourself. But you don't come live at home and sleep on the couch. That's not an option. Right. You've been so raised. I, oh, seriously. And so I took a position as a paralegal in a law firm in D.C. I was there 30 days before I realized that, oh, the only people who matter are lawyers. Mm. Lawyers change the world. Lawyers define the world. I'm going to be a lawyer. And I applied to Georgetown. And I still had to take care of me. So I went to Georgetown at night. At that time, today there are lots of these universities, but at that time, Georgetown was the only school you could attend at night and get a, an accredited degree. Now you can go to lots of schools and get an accredited degree and be in the evening division. But Georgetown was a lifesaver because I could work all day and pay my tuition and go to school at night. New dream, 
uh, you go to Georgetown, you graduate. Talk to us about that first job uh, in a law firm. What was that transition like? Well, um, first it was shocking because I moved to Philadelphia and I came to Philadelphia specifically because I wanted to be in a city where I could represent real companies. When you're a lawyer in D.C., you basically work for the government or you represent the government. I didn't want to do either one. I wanted to be a corporate lawyer and to represent companies. So I moved to Philadelphia because it was on the East Coast. I could still be close to my family, but I could pursue this dream of representing companies. And Philadelphia was a strange new world. <laughs> it was totally different. I said hi to people as I walked down the street because that's what we do. And they looked at me like I was an alien and I was determined they were not going to get me. I was going to make them say hi back. <laughs> and they do now say hi back. <laughs> I was not having it. Mm -hmm. So I said hi to everybody. But it was more than just that. In the law firm that I joined straight out of college, there were 100, I mean, straight out of law school, there were 150 lawyers and there were five women, only one African American. That was me. Wow. And and there was only one other African-American, and he was already a partner. So it was a very dicey place. But lessons from my parents, once again, um, the secretaries and administrative staff protected me. The janitors protected me. How so? They would tell me things that I needed to know. They would make sure I was where I was supposed to be when I would come by in the evenings. The janitors would look, you know, because you work late when you're a young lawyer. The janitors would look in and make sure I was okay. Mm -hmm. Is everything all right? Do you need anything? The secretaries would tell me things that I wasn't necessarily supposed to know, but that they thought might be critical to my survival. They saw in me, and I really want people to hear this because it's true for so many of us. When you get a shot, you're not taking this shot just for yourself. You're the embodiment of a whole lot of people's dreams, a whole lot of people. And I know that sounds like it's a burden and why should we as women of color have to carry that burden, but it's not a burden, it's an honor. It's an honor to know that you get to walk through a door that somebody opened for you and by your behavior, you need to keep that door open so someone can walk behind you. It was really important. Sure. Did you feel like you were, um, I see that as an awesome responsibility as well, rather than, than a burden. I see it more as a blessing. For those people who were looking out for you, you know, after closing in the evenings, uh, doing their jobs, but also trying to make sure that you had the resources or the information you needed to do yours. For those um, administrative assistants and all of those other uh, people in support roles, did you feel like part of your, your job was to kind of lift them with you? Were you carrying some of their weight on your shoulders as well? No, I did. And mm -hmm. I still feel that way. I still feel that way. I mean, it, it, it comes from the fact that I have four younger siblings. And I've always felt a strong sense of responsibility to others. My behavior can open doors or it can shut doors. And I'm determined as best I can to always open doors and to help others through the doors. And it's, it's not hard. It's just being conscious that you're not in this alone. You know, I don't know why 
there are some people who like being the only in the room. Mm -hmm. There is nothing noteworthy about being the only. If that's what you leave as your legacy, then I feel sorry for you because your legacy should be who came behind you, who was smarter than you, who got to go further and faster than you got to go. That's what it's all about. That's what someone did for me, and that's what I hope to do for others. Agreed. And yet you found yourself being, in some, in many respects, the only one, right? In, in a law I firm was. with such little, so little diversity, being the only woman of color. I'm sure you were dealing with that double jeopardy, right? There was the gender it issue. Uh, yes. and, and also the, the racial the racial issue. How did that double jeopardy look and feel to you? Was it explicit? Was it implicit? Uh, was it a feeling? Was it, was it uh, palpable? Unfortunately, it was both. It was both explicit and implicit. Mm -hmm. And it was very, very real. It was very real. There, there was a particular partner. Mm-hmm. He, he could not give me credit for anything. I've always been a really strong writer. I'm really curious. My natural gift is solving problems. And this man was de just determined to beat me down. So he was always really negative. And unfortunately, he was a partner responsible for my work. Mm. Um, and so it was an environment in which... Um, it was not reinforcing. And it was not until I left there and in my next position, the general counsel said to me, you're the best writer I ever met. And I went, what? Really? Mm. Oh, I was stunned. And it made me realize they were getting to me. And one of the things that I, that I have subsequently learned over the years, and I would encourage your listeners, is you've always got to have a support system. You've got to have people that you can check in with. And I had my family. My family loves me dearly. But they didn't know. They'd never experienced anything like this. So joining the Women Lawyers Organization, joining the Barristers, which is the African American Lawyers Organization, um, getting involved with my sorority, I'm a Delta, um, all of those things helped me have a place to go to get a check-in sure. to say, are these people crazy or am I crazy? And, and what do I need to do? And how do I deal with this? So you really have to, um, you have to find a way to get feedback outside of your environment because you can be given very bad information that can throw you off your course. And it doesn't mean everyone is that way. You know, in addition to the people that I've talked about, the administrative staff, the janitors, there were lawyers who wanted to see me succeed and who were helpful and with whom I'm still friends today. Um, but you've got to look for those safe spaces where you can go and get a check-in, where you can get really honest feedback and say, okay, you're doing these things well, but these things you need to tighten up. You always need that. Clarity around your performance and how you might be able to improve. I think that makes a you lot really of sense. Do. And so you have, you've always had this uh, network, uh, this social network to support you uh, outside of the, the workforce and, and maybe even some, some people within. Can you think about moments in meetings, um, in conferences, in boardrooms where you felt the microaggressions, you felt those, um, 
you know, those those kind of hidden insults kind of thrown at you? And in the moment, how did you deal with them? And I'm asking that because one of the things that comes up quite frequently for women of color is what happens in the moment, right? There's there's a difference mm-hmm. between being able to uh, go home and, and, you know, call your community of, of supporters and friends and have those conversations. But it's in the moment when it happens that many of us struggle with, you know, is it me? What do I do? How do I handle this? So can you think of a moment where you've had those experiences and, and how did you deal with them? How many moments would you like to hear, <laughs> my dear? And how recently would you like to hear those moments? So they don't stop. This ha- they don't stop. Mm-hmm. Um so don't delude yourself. They, they, they do not stop. It, it, it can be as simple as people, you know, when I was on the bench and lawyers would come in and they would ask where the judge was, mm. you know, mm. I mean, it, 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 it can be as simple as, you know, the, the partners walking in the room and, and looking at you and saying, you know, um, I'd like to have a turkey sandwich. Well, uh. so would I, but you don't get to say that. So, so part of what you learn over your career arc is um, how to manage with diplomacy. I'd love to tell you that this is a world where you can just say what you think. You really cannot. So you have to learn the art of diplomacy. And there are two things that I would, would hope for everyone to acquire. Number one is a steel rod up your back. Mm-hmm. You will not bend. You will not bow. And also, uh, I have an invisible wall around me. And this invisible wall means I'm not going to let you get to me. So I get to choose when I respond and when I ignore. And sometimes it's most important that you ignore it. Now, you don't forget it. You make note of it because that person has now shown you who they really are. Or that person has put a question mark over their heads to let you figure out later on, are they just ill-informed or are they really um, not your friend? And sometimes you need to respond. It's about balance. The most important thing is you need to maintain your cool. So you said earlier, you know, you got to have your network. You have to have a safe place. You have to have a safe place where you can go You can scream, you can curse, you can say, I can't believe how ignorant these people are. Can you believe they wanted to touch my hair? Mm. You can't, you can't, you know, that's that safe space. But in the moment, in the moment, what you always have to remember is your dignity, your dignity. And your dignity doesn't necessarily mean that you don't respond, but it's the manner in which you respond. So one of my great gifts is that I can slice you into little tiny pieces and you're going to walk away bleeding to death and think that I was just so nice to you (laughs) because I am nice. I'm Southern and I'm diplomatic and I've just cut you up. But it's, and I ask you to be conscious about it and think about it. And because unfortunately we don't get to, you know, we don't get to snap our head and roll our eyes We don't get to curse people out, but we do get to say things. It's just the way you say them. The how matters. The how matters. The how matters. Mm -hmm. The how matters. One of the terms that uh, many of the women uh, we work with closely 
that has been an irritant is this, it's the word attitude, right? To be described mm -hmm. as having an attitude when we are direct, mm -hmm. when we are assertive, when we are firm. Have you had an experience with, with that, that concept? I've been told that I have an attitude. I've been told that I'm too passionate. Mm. Um, yeah, I've been told that I'm angry. Um, what happens is that people want to use your emotion against you. They want, and, and so I don't believe that you have to be bloodless to survive, but I've had incidents in my life where because I was direct and candid, I've been told that I was just too passionate about an mm. issue. And my response sometimes is that, well, then we need passion so that we can address the issue effectively. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're going to be told these things. You're going to be told that you have an attitude. You're going to be told that you're passionate. You're going to be told that you're emotional. Um, first and foremost, always do your homework. If you've not done your homework, if you are not completely, fully, and yes, I say over-prepared for the meeting, for the speech, if you're not over-prepared, then people look for chinks in your armor. So you always want to make sure you know the budget, you know the goals, you know the objective. You want to make sure that you know, you want to know your boss's job better than your boss does. Sure. And that's part of how you're able to deal with the microaggressions. And it's also part of how you're able to put people in their place. And humor plays a great role. Mm, tell yeah. me more. Yeah, humor plays a great role. So I frequently throw off microaggressions by laughing at them, making them laugh. Um, you don't have to respond with hostility. You know, you mm -hmm. really don't have to respond with hostility. You can respond in a in a light manner that breaks the tension in the room by making everyone laugh. Mm -hmm. It's so don't lose your sense of humor. Don't think that that um, is something you have to leave at the corporate door. You really don't. Sure. You absolutely don't. One of the things you mentioned earlier was that you did have um, the flip side of all of this is that there, there are always people who show up for you, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. unexpectedly at other times, you know, you, you extend a hand and, and they welcome you. Can you talk about what worked, what has worked in the workforce uh, for you as a woman of color? You know, who has shown up for you? Uh, how have they shown up and how has that made a difference in your career trajectory? I think that at every phase of my career, there have been people who have wanted to help me, and you have to allow them to help me. When I went to the Red Cross as CEO, I was only the second woman and the first African-American to hold the position. My first board chair and my second board chair both um, recognized my intellect. Mm -hmm and were committed to my success. My second board chair literally met with me weekly 
by phone or face to face, but we never went more than a few days without talking with one another to talk through problems. And a lot of people would feel like, well, you know, you were showing him you weren't prepared. No, I was showing him that I was eager to learn and that I recognized he had the expertise that I needed. And he was happy to share it. So what it did was it made him my champion. Mm -hmm. And you had to show some vulnerability in order for some of that to happen, which I think is one of the things we struggle with, right? If on the one hand, you feel like people are throwing daggers at you, the idea of letting down, you know, your, your cloak, your shield, and letting people in can be can be daunting. So you take a chance and you took a chance. You do. You do. You do take a chance. It doesn't always work. But you, you know, try to be thoughtful, try to see people for who they are. But if, if someone is sincerely extending their hand, let them help you. I said to you a minute ago, always be prepared, always be over prepared, know your boss's job as well as you know your own job. But that doesn't mean that you're supposed to know everything. And so it is really important to find that person that you can say, I just don't know how to do this. Can you talk me through this problem? People want to help. People want to help. And you have to let them, you have to let them help you. You really do. What are you, what are you still learning? You talked about, (laughs) you know, your new season, your new, the new phase of your career. You've mastered a lot, Judge Hughes. You've done a lot. Um, you're a force to be reckoned with. But but there's always opportunity to learn more. What are you learning now? So I believe that every day that God gives me, I have a responsibility to learn something new. So I actually try to learn a new word every day. Mm. I really do. I try to learn a new word every day. And right now, What I'm trying to learn is how in this stage of my life do I use my talent to craft another another path, another way. So there are several things going on. Um, I like helping people. So I do not-for-profit board service as well as corporate board service. And in this new venture, I'm trying to determine how to use my skills to create this new company. And I've done this before because I had my own law firm before I went on the bench, but this is different. This is really different because I'm trying to get corporate clients. Mm. And so this, this arc of how I get people to trust me and to respect my expertise in this new arena is part of what I'm learning. Um, And I'm learning to be resilient, which is a a daily lesson. Please don't think you ever master resiliency because you'll be surprised at what life will throw at you. Mm -hmm. Life, there are so many days where you're gonna get knocked down. And so what I pray for is the clarity of mind to know that I can get up and then the strength of body to actually get up, you know, to not be defeated by someone else's lack of vision. And so that's what I have to learn. I, I think the other thing that I'm, I'm focusing on is that 
Yeah, it's 2019. And we still have not come very far. And I think one of the reasons that we have not come very far is that not enough of us are keeping the doors open. You can look around and see a lot of really, really, really successful people. But if they haven't held the door open for someone else to come behind them, then we're still the minority. And we are literally the statistical minority. As If you look at the census tracts, mm-hmm. African-Americans are shrinking in number. Hispanics are growing. Asians are growing. Caucasians are shrinking in number. But we will still be the bottom of the ladder. So we need to be more conscious about pulling someone else up behind us and ensuring that the opportunities expand. What do you think is getting in the way of keeping those doors open? First and foremost, education. I know it sounds simple, but as my parents were very clear, education changes the arc of our opportunities. And it doesn't mean that we all have to be um, in, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. There is a role for liberal arts, but first and foremost is education, being continual learners and not allowing other people to define who we are. So I mentioned to you that I'm from a very, very, very modest background. Down South, they say stuff like people are dirt poor. There is no such thing as dirt poor down South. There is no such thing. Clorox is cheap and elbow grease is free. (laughs) So our houses are clean. Our sidewalks are clean. No. So don't, yeah, maybe the bank won't give you a loan to make the repairs on your house, but that doesn't have anything to do with your block being clean. It doesn't have anything to do with there being dignity and work. So I'm a believer in dreams, but I'm also a believer in work. I get so irritated when I go into certain fast food restaurants and people act like they're doing me a favor to wait on me. You're not doing me a favor. Sugar, you got a job. You got a job. And in that job, I don't care if it is from being the receptionist to being the person that scoops the fries. You do your best because doing your best allows you to learn something that you're going to carry forward in life. My very, very first job was as a receptionist. I learned how to greet people. I learned how to communicate with strangers. My next job was actually wrapping presents in a department store. Once again, lots of human contact, lots of interacting with people and finding a way to make something beautiful. Every opportunity is one for you to learn and grow and evolve and then to share that information. So I don't have any tolerance for little kids who think it's cute to curse at grown people. Mm. I don't have any tolerance for the little kids who think it's cute to curse at each other. That's not uplifting. It's not expanding their horizons. In fact, in many ways, it's shutting doors on them. So I do think education is really important. It's extremely important. Mm-hmm. So with that, Judge Hughes, uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, I think uh, your parents were uh, 
obviously instrumental in your own growth and in, in providing a pathway to success. And it's funny, uh, we sometimes think that as first generation uh, college students, career uh, professionals, um, we may come in with a deficit when, when in reality, I think our parents are able to seed something a little bit different in us. Uh, give us that work ethic and uh, give us vision and, and the dream that you talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, so with that said, I do want to ask you just a couple of questions that are, we call them rapid fire. Uh, and it's really an opportunity for us to learn a little bit more in a, in a quick way about the things that really kind of make your heart skip a beat. A uh, few questions really quickly, if you can help me with um, short answers Maybe one answer. If not, you know, we'll take two or three as well, but we'll try to get through this uh, as quickly as we can. Let's start with the hard one. You already told me this will be a struggle for you, uh, but I think that's a good struggle to have. Favorite book? Okay, there's three. Everyone should read Thurgood Marshall, American Revolutionary, to understand how we actually dismantled separate but equal. The Price of a Trial by Laureen Carey, who is a Philadelphian, because you need to think deeply about the sacrifices that we have to make in order to survive. And are you willing to make those sacrifices for the price of a child? And third, this just happens to be a book. It's called Last Hope Island. It's about World War II. And if you're like me and a political junkie, you, and it's by a woman named Lynn Olson, if you want to understand what is happening in the geopolitical spectrum and why things are falling apart and why it feels like we're going back to mm -hmm. the 40s and 50s, read Last Hope Island and you will understand the rise of separatism and white nationalists and how we can fight against that. Love it. We can never have too many books. How do you exercise self-care and self-compassion? So I do work out. I, um, I used to run. Now I do what I call walk run. Okay. Walk run. <laughs> so I walk a block and I run across the intersection and then I walk a block and I run across <laughs> the intersection. So I walk run. Um, but I, but I do work out. Um, my, my just indulgence is I get my nails done. I get my hair done. Uh, you know, I love that. And my real secret to survival, chocolate. <laughs> Chocolate's a good thing. Uh, Chocolate is a gift from the gods. <laughs> the song, poem, quote, or advice that motivates you? It's from Muhammad Ali. Impossible is nothing. Impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact. It is an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Impossible is nothing. I believe it. I believe it. And, and finally, so the one thing you would tell every young black girl, and maybe even yourself if you could turn back the clock, about beginning a journey to leadership is? Never, ever, ever sacrifice your integrity. When I left home, my father told me, I gave you my good name. It's what I expect you to bring me back. There is no amount of money. There is no title. There is no boyfriend. There is no anything that is worth your integrity. 
And so if you always hold on to your integrity, your path may not be as you dreamed it as a little girl, but it'll be one where you can always hold up your head and look yourself in the mirror and say, I like who I see. I like me. Hold on to your integrity at all costs. And I think if I could just say one more thing over. Absolutely. Don't let anyone define your dreams. So I told you I flunked chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. There wasn't anyone to tell me that I could take chemistry again, that I could be a pediatrician. There were all these people telling me I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. Don't let other people define your dreams for you. I am grateful that God smiled on me and set other paths in front of me. And I really do believe there are many paths to our dreams. But we too often as black women let people slam doors in our face. What I'm telling you now, if they slam a door in your face, you go around it. You find another door. You climb through the window. Don't let them define you, but be honest with yourself. What are your gifts? What are your talents? And your gifts are so much greater, so much greater than anything society thinks of you. And this is precisely why we knew we needed to have your voice on things we don't discuss. Thank you for your integrity, for the the body of work that you've given this city, this region, uh, and so many of us who've been blessed with the opportunity to sit at your feet and learn from you and listen to you and see that Southern smile and charm. Judge Hughes, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity.